We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another strong young chess player joining us this week. He is a 25-year-old grandmaster from the Ukraine originally by way of Spain, Turkey, and now St. Louis, if my research is correct. He was the 2012 World Junior Champion, and he has just recently published a fun, um, informative book called Unconventional Approaches to Modern Chess, Volume 1, Rare Ideas for Black. Alex Ipatov, how are you doing, Alex? Uh, good afternoon, Ben. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So I was just telling you before we started recording, I've been checking out your book. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little background about the book? And of course, we'll eventually get into your background as well. So Alex, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how this book came into being? Uh, so the idea of writing a book came to me in, uh, in August 2018, so like last summer. And I created an outline and like a couple of weeks later, I started writing it. It was during the uh, the, the fall of 2018. 
And I think I was done by the by the beginning of November. So it took about two months to complete the book. However, I mean, of course, I mean, the book was based on the multiple years of research and I used a lot of my, op- uh, my own opening analysis. So basically, I mean, I just put all my opening analysis and just uh, either extended or cut them off. I mean, and the book was ready. And in the end of this year, I should be done with volume two. So like rare ideas for white and the book. So the book is the main message of the book is to emphasize the importance of classics and the right fundamentals. I mean, and in the book, I try to convey the message that studying opening theory, like is not as important as people might think nowadays, because I noticed that many players from on different levels, grandmasters, uh, amateurs, club level players, they spend a lot of time analyzing openings. They turn on the engine. They try to research. I mean, some novelty neither. I mean, until both twenty or thirty. But I think it's irrelevant. I mean, so for example, you can look at how Jababa plays or uh, or Rappert. I mean, they play unconventional openings. They might get worse with white or with black. It doesn't matter. But they immediately bring their opponent into unknown territory where opening theory doesn't matter that much. And then gradually they outplay them. And this is, I mean, like what my book is is about is a practical approach to to the game of chess. Yeah, and it's fun. I mean, there's a few things I'd like to add. Uh, having just just read the book on forward chess, um, as I was telling you before we recorded, and um, one is. For one thing, I just want to point out to listeners, you definitely practice what you preach. I mean, you've got your own games in here um, and, you know, you're playing like one night a six against the likes of Sam Shankland and, uh, you know, playing super strong players and and still playing these openings that are considered, um, you know, substandard or or whatever term you want to use. Um, The other thing is, of course, this is a topic that has come up a lot on this podcast since we talked chess improvement. So I found it refreshing to hear it. So you you lay out in the um, introduction of the book that the trend of memorizing openings has become unhealthy in your mind. And you give three reasons. Chess is not fun with too much memorization. There's an opportunity cost, which I think is important, and that theory changes. So it's a good overview. And then you get into some, you know, offbeat type openings like double fee and kettos and, you know, some sort of Philidor hybrids and and on and on. So uh, one thing that surprised me, though, is I felt like even in this book, like, I guess there's just when a for a player at your level, there's no escaping. But I felt like there was still a lot of high level games, and and uh, there was even theory in the non theoretical lines. Yeah, like in which line, for example? Um, let's see. Well, like the double fianchetto, the b six against the. Yeah. Um, it's actually, I think it's uh, almost a sound opening. Maybe I mean it's not, not that great as Grunfeld or like Slav, but. It's not that bad. I mean, of course, 96 and E5 is much, objectively, is much worse than double fan ghetto. Double fan ghetto, I think it's, uh, I mean, you can play the, play that opening regularly, as I did like, during 2013, 2015, I mean. Yeah, and philosophically, I guess it's not that much different from like a Queen's Indian. Right, right. I mean, so you, you, you just don't play E6, you try to save it at a tempo on like, keeping the opponent E7. So how did you come, to Alex, to, to this philosophy? Um like what was this something that developed slowly over time or would you, were you kind of anti-opening from the beginning in your, in your chess career? I don't know. It's a good question. I never thought about it. I mean, so uh, I guess it indeed came gradually. I played a lot of opening tournaments and like, since I was like a, a child. So let's since 2007, I was playing a lot of tournaments in, in Spain and then in other countries in Europe. And in order to, to be consistently good in opens, you have to, 
consistently beat low rated opponents and it's not easy because like nowadays everyone knows theory and 10 years ago it was the same everyone had access to chess base and to ripka or maybe stockfish didn't exist but there was a ripka and some other engines i mean of fritz whatever so you have to play something out of theory because if you play if you play let's say petrov against a low rated opponent i mean players are good nowadays i mean like 2200 will not make a mistake if you don't pose problems and if you want to, if you want to post problems, you have to, in my opinion, uh, get the game out of theory as early as possible and make your opponent think of him so that he doesn't feel comfortable. Um, he doesn't feel comfortable in the position. He doesn't know where to put his pieces and so on. So maybe, I mean, answering your question, I think it came gradually just by playing many open tournaments and having the necessity to to constantly win in the first couple of rounds to get to play stronger opponents because in open tournaments you usually have to score like seven out of nine or eight out of nine to to tie for first or to be in top three. Okay. So you felt like it maximizes your chances, but you're also, you, you played against stronger players as well, or at least you're willing to. So was that something that evolved over time, a willingness to, to venture these openings against even other top GMs? I think it was, it came actually recently. I mean, maybe a couple of years ago, uh, prior to that, I was quite, quite afraid to play against grandmasters. I mean, I mean, I showed a lot of respect that I tried to play sound opening. I was passive. But nowadays I don't really have that much fear. Maybe because I don't play that many tournaments. Because now I'm focused on my education. Uh, so I mean, I try to split time equally between education and chess. So when I play chess, I try to enjoy it. And so against Shankland, I played last year when I was like quite busy with school. So I wanted to just to have a fun game, and I think it, it was one. And um, yeah, I think against Grandmasters, I, st- I started playing those openings just recently. Okay. Yeah. And I should have mentioned in the intro, you're at St. Louis University and you're getting an MBA. Is that right? Uh, no, I finished MBA last May. Okay. So, yeah. So actually about education, I finished MBA. I, I came to St. Louis in May 2017. I completed my MBA. It was a one-year MBA program in May 2018. Then I enrolled into Master of Supply Chain Management. And now I'm transferring to Master in Computer Science. And in the fall of 2019, I will begin Master in Computer Science. I think I'll, I'm going to withdraw from... Um, from supply chain management program because it'll be very hard to do to pursue two graduate degrees simultaneously and do well in both. So, so what? What? Uh, we'll get back to chess in a minute. But but what made you change your mind about uh, supply chain management management as opposed to computer science? I mean, computer science is I think it's more fun. At first of all, I mean, like I, I like quantitative things. I mean, I did MBA because I didn't really have the quantitative background to go into like mastering computer science or like another quantitative field. But this year I spent on taking the prerequisites, and I think I'm more re- more or less ready. I mean, I mean to pursue like a career in the computer science field. I mean, okay. not career to, to pursue like education. Okay. And um, I'm as I hope you don't mind my asking, but um, yeah. are you able to get a chess scholarship for for these subjects for getting masters in these subjects? Yes, yes, of course. Otherwise, it would be quite expensive. I mean, to, to yeah. Pay. Well, that's, I mean, that's great, though. I mean, uh, as we've talked about many times here on this show, I mean, it's great that they support chess and that you're able to, uh, that you're able to, to put your formidable brain power to use in, uh, in, in different fields. Right. Yeah, I'm re- really grateful. I mean, to St. Louis Chess Club and St. Louis University, I mean, Greg Simple, of course, for giving this opportunity to players from all over the world to, you know, to pursue, I mean, education, I mean, like free, of course, free, and, like free. Yeah. And how's life in St. Louis? You, you enjoy it there? Yeah. Right now it's raining, but in general, I mean, I think it, it will soon become summer and I'll go to play soccer. I mean, I'm, I like to play soccer as well, I mean, by the way. Yeah, I think I saw you mentioned in your book you were playing at one of the Olympiads. Uh, you were playing soccer like till midnight basically every night. Yeah, that's right. That's that's my game from, I think, from 
E4, um, G6, D4, Knight F6, E5, Knight H5. I played against some play from uh, Paraguay. No, not Paraguay, from Ecuador, maybe. from Some country from Latin America, and I got a complete loss against 2200. But again, in that tournament, I was playing soccer yeah, like almost every night for three okay. or four hours. That's fun. And were there were there other GMs out there with you? Um, oh, of course. Yeah, many GMs. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, Magnus was also playing occasionally. Oh, because cool. He was in Tromsø in his country. How but are... the problem, the problem, sorry, the problem was that it was a small field, and the, the not not everyone who wanted to play could play. So they were playing elimination, and I think Magnus didn't have that that great team. I mean, so sometimes his team was uh, like was eliminated, so he had to wait. I mean, like for another half an hour to play again, and he really often didn't like it, so he was he would just go and leave. Oh, okay. He's yeah. very competitive. Yeah, that makes sense. I've had to deal with that. They play a lot of pickup basketball here in the States. Yeah, and it's never fun when you have to wait. And he's, as Magnus, you know, people are usually waiting for him, not the other way around. So Right, right, right yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, well, anyway, let's take it back to chess. I mean, that that stuff is interesting to me. But we have some questions. Um, so I sent you these in advance. We have a couple um Supporters of the podcast who uh, send in questions. I, I teased the book a little bit in when I announced that you were going to be the guest. Um, and it seemed to strike a, strike a chord with people. I mean, I think people don't for, don't wholly know how to form the opinion of what you're saying because it might be uh, considered um, somewhat, I mean, I feel like radical is too strong a word, but uh, slightly outlandish, the openings you're advocating and the general philosophy. So I'm going to read these two questions together because I feel like there's some overlap and then you can just sort of uh, take take it as you wish. So okay. so the first question here, we I'm taking another crack at a name I have mispronounced in the past. So it's uh, Bradley Jupri. Um, and he asks, uh, if players should not focus on learning opening variations, what exactly should be studied out of the openings to help a player improve the most? Is it best to learn and play a few variations deeply or play a variety of openings sticking to basic principles? And then the second question, related question from Jerry Wells, he says, as a scholastic coach and adult improver, I'm curious about the long-term benefits of playing for surprises in the opening. Although I'm sympathetic to the Maverick cause, I usually agree with the argument that playing standard openings like the Italian or Queen's Gambit decline serves the lifelong player in greater stead, not because of the lines memorized, but because of the structures understood. Um, so a lot a lot from there to tackle, but you take it anywhere you want, Alex. Yeah, I'll just open your email just to, just to make sure I see those questions in, like, in front of my eyes. Uh, yeah. I think I'll go with the first question. Let me find it. About the long-term benefits, right? Yeah. Okay, just a second. Yeah, so I think as a long, uh, as far as long-term benefits of playing like surprise openings are concerned, I don't think there are like any of them. I think is just not that good. I mean, it's, it might come surprising from an author of a conventional like from a from an author that wrote a book on uh, side uh, sideline openings. But again, I mean, my my message in the book was that uh, uh, study. Uh, Classics. I mean, classical games, Kablanka, Alehain, whatever I mentioned there. I mean, Fischer, Karpov, Kasparov. I mean, I think all of them can be considered as classics. Rubinstein, for example. Uh, soft studies, soft tactics. I mean, uh, learn typical plans and typical typical pawn structures, and then play what you want. But don't just uh, focus on playing sidelines for the sake of it. This is just like a small part of the picture. I mean, so I personally don't think that there are like, any benefits just playing sideline openings if you don't have a good foundation, the classical foundations. If you have, you can play whatever you want. I mean, I mean it's, 
I mean, you can see how Rapport is playing. I mean, if we recall his match against Shenklin from like they played the Rapid and Blitz in St. Louis last month. I mean, Rapport completely destroyed uh, Sam. So it was like two different approaches. It was a very interesting match for me to see because Sam is very known, well known for his great opening preparation, whereas Rapport is known for his un- unconventional approach to chess. And we saw that. I mean, it was a one-sided match. Yeah, so, I think in Rapid in particular, someone like uh, like GM Richard Rapport, who you mentioned, um, I think he might have an advantage because uh, you kind of set people on their back foot um, and they don't have time to, to work through everything over the board in a 30-minute game. Yeah, also, um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, but did I pre- respond to the question properly or shall I give it another try? I'm like, No, no, sure. I think you did. I mean, having read your book, I would just add that... that uh, um, you basically advocate in the book, you're not running away from studying the structures, even though the openings themselves that you recommend are somewhat unorthodox. You're not saying like, like it's fairly deep in the weeds of these openings. And if you, if you were to read these books and go through the games, you would, you would understand something about the structures. So, um, and, and, the book has lots of different openings and I'm guessing, I don't remember, as I recall, Bradley is, um, is not like I think he's I think he's rated below eighteen hundred if I'm correct and for someone like that like you talk about the importance of not only playing these openings but you need to catch people off guard it's not just enough for you to play the double V and Keto because you need something else because they're going to prepare for whatever they see you might play but I think uh, the lower you go down the the rating ladder the less important that becomes because there's just less preparation generally and even if people do prepare for you they're not necessarily going to prepare correctly so I would say Bradley that that based on what Alex wrote in his book you can just study a couple and then mainly it's the opportunity cost precept that you lay out in your book that that like you say study the classics learn structures and i think you you also say somewhere in the book learn end games before openings yeah and it was advised by uh, the third world champion jose Rodolfo blanca this is the one he gave 100 years ago and i think it's still applicable today yeah right? it's, it, it might appear boring because i understand that studying openings it's much more fun a lot of games so you can turn on the engine anytime you want but i don't think there are really like long-term benefits I and mean, i think maybe there are short-term benefits you might bump your rating quickly like let's say like and 200 rating points, but then you'll be stuck there because you you lack a uh, foundation to go further. Whereas if you study classics, you might not uh, improve as quickly, but you will improve uh, steadily, and you you will have more potential for growth. If if I'm, I hope I'm, I make my point. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And then I think that this also pretty well covers uh, the question from Jerry Wells. I mean, he's just asking, like. I mean, he's just asking, is it still useful to to study standard openings like the Italian and the Queen's Gambit declined? Um, and obviously, there's many more examples. And, and I, I really wonder what does he mean by studying? I mean, like uh, memorizing opening theory or like modern games, like opening theory or just understanding the, the, the typical plans. I'm like, sorry. Yeah, it, it would be more more understanding the typical plans and as i look at the question again he actually says playing standard openings like them yeah yeah i think this this is always helpful i mean i mean to know the, to, to study plans and pay less attention to what modern theory says i mean yeah and um there's a lot more that could be said about this but but one thing just for listeners is you you have to generally know what your own goal is in chess i mean if you're really trying to maximize your results or if you're trying to gain an appreciation for chess um, those those can be separate things and not necessarily um, have the the same goal. So I do think that if you're if you're these could be looked at in my mind kind of like study hacks um, as a as a, 
a hardworking student. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment, Alex? Uh, can, you, can you repeat the question again? I, I, I would think of a lot of these lines as sort of like study hacks. You know what cliff notes are? Like where instead of reading a book, you read the summary of the book sort of thing? Yeah, could be. I, I don't know. And also those, I mean, those openings were quite subjective. I mean, they were mostly based on my own opening repertoire. It could be anything else. So it's not like I suggest that this is like the opening openings you should play. I and mean, this is just like one subset of uh, unconventional openings you, you, you can play. I mean. So you can see, I mean, as just, uh, yeah, as a, as a help guide or just, uh, I don't know, yeah. as a reference for, pri- for uh, club level players or for open, uh, for players who play opens, I mean. Yeah. And I, I still think, sorry, we you could keep yeah. going if you want. Yeah, yeah, but again, the big picture is just uh, not not to memorize those openings that I provide. It's just again, it's just you can play whatever you want. For example, this opening for three hundred pages, but the main uh, message is actually in introduction and the conclusion. Start, focus your time on those uh, like classical things and play whatever you want. And then I give like many openings that you can play and surprise your opponents. And then yeah, there's it. yeah, and and whatever opening you play it's beneficial to, to try to understand the structure, whether it's... Of a, course, right, right. Otherwise, I mean, yes, it doesn't make sense, I mean, to study those crazy openings and with the first, what and, like, follow the f- computer recommendation. Try to understand what your typical plans are, even if it doesn't go well with the, with, with the computer recommendation, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and you and you talk a lot in, about how you don't really... Like there are there are positions where the engine might might give an edge to the other side, but if you feel like it's a dynamic position, that's good enough for you. If it suits my style and doesn't suit the opponent's style, so we, we should also take those things into into consideration. I mean, so when I choose some bit opening against a certain opponent, depends on his style, depends on my style, depends on tournament situation, like and depends on many factors. I mean, right. So against a solid opponent, I would prefer to get him into a dynamic position where he is against their. A more dynamic play, I'll try to get in a bit position, but still like more more solid. I mean, so there are many factors. I mean, uh, that depend on what opening I choose. Okay. That's why it's beneficial to have a couple of openings so you can choose from. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, couple more from the book, Alex. Um, yeah. Uh, number one, I thought it was funny. You say somewhere that you're a big fan of developing your knights to the edge of the board. Yeah, it's, it's like a for fun. I said I just noticed a pattern. I, I like to play knight h6, knight a6, and it was why it was why I had a game against Marta Fierro. It'll be actually in the second volume of the book when I played uh, knight a3, knight a3, the knight c2, knight f2, uh-huh. and actually knights are played as well because it support the center, right? The knight from f2 covers a4 square, knight from c2, uh, I, I mean protects, I mean or puts pressure on d4 square. Yeah, so, so it's not so much that. it's not so much the the edge itself. It's the, the edge uh, as a route to to f2 and c2 and f7 and yeah <laughs> right to control the center actually which is okay. still people play knight f3 knight c3 and i mean this is how coaches teach uh, beginners right i mean just develop your piece towards the center but when i play knight f3 knight f3 knight f2 knight c2 or was black knight f6 knight f6 knight f7 knight f7 it has the same goal i just want to control the center and i want to control the key squares e5 and d5 if i'm black so knights on f7 controls e5 knight on c7 controls d5 and is white i mean knight on c2 knight f2 they control d4 and e4 so same goal just control the center which is according to chess principles right yeah and one one other question that i couldn't help but wonder in reading your book and there's sort of a visceral dislike for how much memorization is required these days for for a player of, of your level um so I, I don't know if you saw the news that there's going to be a, a chess 960 world championship 
later this year. FIDE sanctioned. I mean, I think they're calling it Fisher Chess, but whichever. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So what's your opinion of uh, that that potential avenue for chess? I think it's great. I think it's a um, um... I think it would be beneficial for, for chess players. I mean, Rapid Blitz and uh, uh, Chess 96, uh, Chess 960, I mean, uh, those are great initiatives. So I'm not, I don't think I'll be able to play myself because, I mean, I'll, I'm currently pursuing my education for the next two years. I, I'm playing on playing only tournaments within the United States. Uh, but, I, of course, I'll follow. And I think it's, again, it's a great initiative. I don't, I don't know much about the subject, I mean. Okay. But but I really don't like to memorize that many openings, especially like, I don't know, Grunfeld, for example. I used to play Grunfeld, and if you want to play it, you have to keep in mind a lot of variations, just really a lot. I have a story to tell. In 2015, I played the World Cup, and in the first round, I played Chiparinov, and we prepared Slav against him, like Schlechter variation in Slav. And I managed, okay, with black, I drew, with white, I won, so I passed to round two, and I played Eliano. And against him, I didn't want to play Slav. So in one day, I had to refresh like the entire, all the Grunfeld theory, which was like for eight and nine hours, I was just refreshing the lines I had in my chess base uh, files. And he played something else. Like he played, like, he surprised him on, on move five. Hmm. So yeah, not, that, that, since then, I don't really like to play Grunfeld anymore because if you, don't, if, if you forget something, I mean, you just might lose very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And you've mentioned in uh, past interviews that you've, more or less taking the decision not to play chess professionally. Um, do you think that your dislike of the amount of memorization required, is that a contributing factor? I don't know. I mean, I, did, did I say that I want to play chess professionally? Yeah, you said you were. Yeah, I think it was an interview with uh, Daniel King uh, from one of the Olympiads. Oh, okay. It was, it was five years ago. Right? Yeah. So, you, um, so has your opinion changed about that? Uh, why? Well, yeah, I, would, I would like to be still a professional. I just need to complete my studies, and I'm mm-hmm. still playing tournaments. And upon the completion, I would like to get back and play more regularly. I would like to break 2700, uh, like rate, rating barrier. So yeah, I mean, I think since then I changed. I would like. I just want to get my education first, and then I mean, get back to chess. Okay, that's good to hear. And um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's kind of, it's like it's a win-win when when they, when the education is free, it can't hurt. That's correct, right. And still, I'm relatively young. I mean, I'm not that young, but I'm still young enough, I mean, just to learn something new and then come back to chess. So when you come back to it, what's, uh, like, do you have a plan in mind um, in terms of um, how much you'll play and what specific aspects of the game you would study? Uh, okay, I'm planning to, like, to stay in the United States. So currently, I'm in the process of playing for green card. Mm-hmm. And so in the future, I'm planning to play mostly national tournaments like U.S. Open, World Open, Chicago Open, so to play more American tournaments. And uh, upon completion of my studies, I'm also planning uh, to start giving lessons, open my own school, and run summer camps, maybe do some scholastic chess, and of course, write more chess books. I mean, Cool. Yeah. Do you have so, a sense of if you're going to stay in St. Louis? Or? I, it depends. It depends. I mean, I, I don't know. But somewhere in the United States. Okay. And um, so you grew up in, I'm sorry, I'm going to mispronounce the city, of course, but Liev, Ukraine? In Lviv, yeah. Lviv, Lviv, yeah. Yes, I, I grew up there. So legendary uh, chess town. That's <laughs> correct. That is correct. Yes, that's true. Maybe one, the strongest one in the Soviet Union. So what's the seat? What's in the, so Ivanchuk is there. What other uh, well-known players are, are from your hometown? Um, so Ivanchuk is actually like he is from other city, but he spent most of his life in. in uh, he moved when he was young, right? So he, he of course, he is one of the Vivians. 
then um, let's see if you know those players. I mean, because I mean, there are many strong Ukrainian players who are not that like known in the world. For example, Krivoruchko. Have you heard? Say the name again. Yuri Krivoruchko. He plays for the Ukrainian national team. He's I like have, 2690, 2600. Oleg I mean, Ukrainian champion. He was also 26, uh, like 50. Uh, br- brothers, Lovko. I mean, they're like also 2600. Martin Kravtsev. Uh, Maria Muzuchuk and Anna Muzuchuk, I guess uh, you know. Of course, yes. Those two. Uh, Adrian Michalchishin, he's a famous coach and the author. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Bilavsky, Alexander Bilavsky, Romanishin. Like, at some point I was number one or two in Turkey. I was like number 10 in my city. Which wow. Is very funny. That, that, that's incredible. So yeah. what, what do you think, um, what do you think contributes to there being so many super strong players? Um, I, I think this is a past. I mean, I think it was still based upon like um, uh, Soviet tradition. I mean, where chess was very popular. But now I think many Ukrainian players are like either leaving the country or I don't know, I mean, or stop playing chess. But mostly, I mean, like for example, Ilya Nizhnik, he's in St. Louis right now, right? Right. Yaro Jerebu, whom, whom you interviewed last year, he was also in St. Louis. Now he's also in, in, the, in the United States. Pavel Vorontsov at Texas Tech. Uh, Bortnik, I mean, like one of the best like bullet players in the world, also like 2600 uh, player. He went to Brown. He he stayed at Brownsville for half a year. Now he opened his chess school in Miami. Okay. So who else? Uh, Evgeny Stem- like Jack Stembulak, I mean, also Texas Tech 2500 player. Uh, Andrei Barishpolitz, like the, the top board of the Texas Tech team. Uh, hmm. Alexander Onishchuk, I mean, like also I mean, one of the strongest American players who was yeah. also born in Ukraine. So if you see him, I and mean, I think all the guys at all the top guys I played in Ukrainian youth championships there right now in the, in the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so it must be a strange feeling seeing like your old friends all over the U.S. Right, and so I played, for example, against Yaro. I played first time when we were both seven years old. Actually, he was also from my city. I oh, funny. I forgot to mention him. So I knew him like since, yeah, since we were unrated. I mean. Against Ilya, I played for the first time against Nishnik when he was eight years old. I was, uh, okay, 11. And now, yes, I mean, we all grew up and we actually ended up in the same city. Huh. That, that's so so I, I don't really, but I don't really think that uh, um, Ukraine will keep producing so many, uh, like, strong players. I think, actually, the tradition is gradually dying in, uh, like, in Ukraine. I, I'm not sure about Russia. Because, again, I mean, many players are just immigrating. Yeah. So the, 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 the talent is, uh, is, like, moving to other countries. Yeah, I've, and I've heard people say that about Russia too. Even though, I mean, if obviously if you look at the top 100 list, there's plenty of Russian players. But yeah, the the younger generation, especially when you compare it to places like uh, India and China, right? An, That's correct, right? Not not you quite. Also, as, only Artemyev, maybe only Artemyev, but others. I mean, like nothing special. Let's say let's, let's take Fedosev. He's a very very strong grandmaster, but he's 24, I think, already, right? Yeah, Kasparov was already like the the world champion at that age. Yeah. So, and Indian grandmasters, like Indian young players, who become grandmasters at twelve or thirteen. So I don't know any Russian player who became grandmaster at this young age, like nowadays. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I hope. I mean, these things go in cycles. So I hope. I know that the infrastructure isn't as strong as it once was, but hopefully we haven't heard the last. But just because uh, Russia and Ukraine and all of the former Soviet republics, they just have such a storied history that I, yeah. I would I would like to see it keep going um, or resurrect. Um, yeah. Um, so, so Alex, um, as I warned you, we, one thing that we, we always like to talk about here is uh, chess improvement and chess books. So, um, I know, I know you mentioned in your book that, that you're, and we've talked about, you're an advocate of studying the classics. So right. what, what are the classics in your mind? Like what, uh, what are your favorite chess books? Um, 
both for your own development and ones that that you find yourself um, recommending for for any students you've worked with? Uh, so most of the books that I read, they, they were in Russian. So I'm not sure like those books were translated into English, but many of them were. For example, Ali Hain's, uh Best Games uh, Manual. I think it's like a blue book in, in English. In Russian, it was a completely different book. So for example, like favorite games of Alexander Alihain with his own comments. So I think this is like one of those books that you should study. I mean, like you take a world championship, uh, the world champions book where he, where he goes over his own games and this is how you learn uh, typical pawn structures, like plans and, and ideas. So it can be Kababank, Alehain. I think most of the world champions, they wrote one or more books about their career. Yeah. So, and, and is Alekhine your favorite player? Yeah, I think so, right? Because he was, I think I'm sort of a dynamic player, and so was he. And I, I don't know, I, I feel, I, when people ask me this question, I, I usually say it's Alehain. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Do you, what about like uh, favorite games? Do you have a favorite game of all time, whether of yourself uh, or or just uh, amongst the classics? Uh, good question about the favorite game. I mean, uh, I can I can yeah. help you out. I did see in one interview you mentioned your game with uh, Niels Grandiolis. Grandiel- right, right, right. Yes, the, the points, right. But once you ask me my favorite game or classical classical. A favorite game. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't want to put my game if, uh, in front of classical game because I think those games should have more importance than my games. So yeah, I, was, I guess I should. Yeah, yeah I should uh, distinguish between from an educational standpoint as yeah, opposed yeah. to like from your most memorable, um, your your career highlights. Right. So thing. classical right now they don't come. I mean, I see like many games like Rubinstein, for example, where he won with like two bishops. Rook Rook takes his three. Rook h three. If you if you know that. I don't know it offhand. Do you know who he yeah, played yeah. in that game? Uh, I don't remember. I recorded one video for YouTube uh, in, in Turkish. I mean, I, but I forgot. R- R- I think. Rotlevi. Oh, Rotlevi. yeah, yeah. I do. Okay. Something like that, right? Like, well, of course, I mean, like their opponents didn't, didn't play that well because competition level wasn't that strong. There were a couple of strong players in the world and pretty much el- everyone else was much, much weaker. But still, I mean, th- those games show, I mean, like typical ideas, uh, plans, and of course, I mean, some of them have tactical beauty, like Rook C3, Rook H3 is really beautiful. Yeah, but I cannot like say some game off my hand right now. Off okay. my head right. Now. And what about Alex? What about general improvement advice? I mean, I'm sure you get asked this uh, a lot in many forms. But if if like predominantly the people who listen to this podcast are adults looking to get better at chess, so um, mm-hmm. what advice? If you have a limited amount of time you know, say five to 10 hours a week, how, what do you think the best approach is to, to trying to improve? Okay, so if you have, let's say, 10 hours a week, so it's, let's say, one hour and a half uh, per day, right? Yeah. I okay. mean, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And I think the best would be to to allocate the time uh, equally, so study chess one hour and a half a day, rather than, like, let's say, 10 hours over the weekend, like five hours on Saturday, five hours on Sunday. I think it's not good. I mean, not to do anything for five days and then just try to catch up on two days. I think this would be wrong. I think better to spread out the training process equally among the days before work or after work. So one hour and a half out of those one hour and a half hours, let's say um, um, maybe like 15 minutes, like to to half an hour to do tactics. This should should be done on a regular basis. And then go over one classical game at least, like from Alehain's manual or from any other book. 
just to make sure that that book is written by a world-class player. And like, it, it cannot be like games of Alejandro written by, let's say someone else, I mean, like of much lower caliber. It should be written by world champion mm-hmm. or let's say Rubinstein, who was like of that level, right. world champion level. And let's say half an hour for that game. The quality matters more than quality. It's not how many games you go over. It's like whether you learn something from the, from what you go over. So let's say one game, but but carefully and trying to understand the plans. And for the remaining half an hour or like forty five minutes, depending how much is left, to do end games. I think. Okay. And how yeah, would and you do, how would you do end games? I think uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it depends on the level of a, of a, like podcast listener. I mean, but I would advise Mark Vuretsky end game manual. But okay. I don't know if if it's advanced material or not. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really not sure. Heard, yeah, I mean, I've I've I have heard in the past like twenty one hundred on up, but some people say a little lower, some people say a little higher. But yeah, definitely a higher higher level end game. But I mean, a similar book for a much lower level is uh, Soman's End Game Course, which this is what I heard. Right again, I never read any of his books. I know he wrote many many books, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't know, so I cannot suggest something I I didn't read. Yeah, of course. That yeah. makes sense. And in terms of how you do the taxes, do you think it matters? Like, uh, we've had a lot of people advocate solving studies, uh, but then there's also tactics books, tactics trainers. Uh, do you think there's much of a difference as long as you're you're doing it um, basically every day? As a child, I think I, I was solving more studies, I believe. At least my coach was printing out and giving me home. Because uh-huh. back then, I, I got my first laptop when I was 12 years old, so I didn't have laptop. I mean, like for the right. first six years, I was like, yeah, so he was just giving me a huge printout, and I was trying to solve and write down the solution. So this is what I recall. So I was doing quite a lot of endgame studies. Um, yeah. As far as just regular combinations are concerned, I guess there are like good books. I mean, I think Agar's books are considered to be good, but again, they're for maybe for strong players, I assume, right? Yeah, I mean, they're quite often recommended here just because we talk to so many strong players. But yeah, again, it would um, I would think at least Class A at the lowest for, for but his But Chess.com has good... Chess.com uh, tactics trainer is quite good, I think. yeah. And it's just like ten hours. It's like ten minutes a day. Chess uh, tactics trainer, and the rest uh, like one or two studies, like in the remaining like twenty minutes. And did you ever get bitten by the uh, puzzle rush addiction that uh, swept the chess world? Yeah, I was doing occasionally. My record is not that high. It's like forty-seven. I mean, I see people do like much more than that, like fifty or fifty-five. Uh huh. Too, too busy. With, too busy with school, I guess. Well, it's very compa- if I start doing it, I, I'm just very addictive. I mean. I, when I do it, I start. I do it like for two, three hours. I mean, I just cannot do one and forget. I mean, I just yeah. I want to do better and better. So I don't think it's like really. I, I spend my time well because I really have a lot of other things these days. Yeah. Um. And do you feel like generally when you when you I know you had some success uh pretty quickly when you were introduced to chess as a kid. Do you feel like you had a do you had a natural talent for tactics in particular and chess generally? Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I know that I was a very uh, active uh, child. So when, uh, my, when my mother brought me uh, to, to when, actually, when she came to the chess club and she asked the coach, I mean, like, my son is very active. He likes to play uh, outdoor. Will it be good if he uh, plays chess? Because he thought, I mean, it might not be good. She thought that it might not be a good, an appropriate game for me because, I mean, I'm a physically active child and chess requires, uh, like, focus and dedication. But uh, the chess coach that is great. Just bring him in. I mean, so I I don't know. I mean, and uh, about talent, I don't know. I've heard different opinion. I mean, people people talking about me. Some people huh. say I do. Some people don't. I mean, so 
Dubo, for example, he said the only thing I can do, it was like five years ago before he became world record, because I, I think we were quite close friends like during 2000, uh, again, from 9 2013 maybe. Okay. So I was talking to him then, and he was like, the only thing you can do is objectively evaluate the position, something like that. I mean, so I, I can evaluate the position, the only thing I could do according to him. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. That's our Russian GM, D- Daniil Dubov, for, for, for anyone who didn't catch that. That's funny. I mean, yeah. and it's all relative. I mean, because to most of our listeners and to me, like anyone who, who reaches the level you have who's 2650 knocking on the door of 2700, like to me, that just seems like a staggering talent. But then I know there are other people who evaluate players through the lens of like, can they be world champion? You know, like. Well, but again, again, talking. We were like again talking closely. I was talking closely to Daniel in that period, and I remember in Tromsø when I was playing Wesley. So in the World Cup, he was facing, uh, I think Fedor Chuk, and then he beat Ponomaryov, and then he lost to Korobov. But if he beat Korobov, I think he would have been he would end up playing Nakamura, and this is what he told me. I remember. So if in classical game, and back then Daniel was like twenty six ten maybe or something, he considered himself as a slight favorite against Nakamura, which was really really funny to hear. Uh-huh. In, in, in rapid, they were equal, and in bliss, Nakamura was slightly better. So, but in classical game, Dubo, who was like twenty six ten, was better than Nakamura, who was already like twenty seven, I don't know eighty. <laughs> so, That's... whatever he, he, his opinion, of course, is like very, very subjective. I mean. Right? Yeah, and uh, you do need a healthy dose of confidence to, you know, to to reach high, um, to reach high heights in in the chess world, but. And, it did, and last year he won the World Rapid, I mean, like in a Swiss tournament where Carlson and all the best players played. Yeah, incredible, incredible yeah, achievement. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about the, the next World Championship cycle? Is there, I mean, uh, the consensus seems to be forming that it's hard to imagine. Uh, I mean, well, Magnus is on a tear right now, for one thing. But even beyond that, hard to imagine someone other than Fabiano um you know, ascending to challenge him. Do you, do you think that's true? Or do you, is there anyone that you think um, could step up? Uh, well, right now, indeed, it seems like there are two players. As Magnus said himself in one of the interviews, there are only two players in the world, like me and Caruana. And I think, I mean, again, I'm not the right person to judge. I mean, I'm, I'm like number like 109 in the world. I mean, so I cannot say that. I mean, like 100 and how many? Seven people in front of me are like not suitable for the world championship title. So I cannot say that. But according to Carlson, there is only Caruana. And I think he knows better, right? He's a world champion. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, he, and unlike some top players in the past, I mean, he... He tends to say what he's really thinking. So, right, um, right. Yeah, I guess we have to take him at his word. Um, so, I know I saw in your book you've played Peter Fiddler, you've played Sam Shanklin. What other uh, like world class top thirty type players have you played? And and is there is there one game that that you find the most memorable? Actually, when when you were asking the question, I started thinking already, and I played against. Okay, in two thousand thirteen, I was uh, played the top board for Turkish team in the World Team Championship. So I, uh, although the tournament didn't go well for me, I played against a number of strong players. I drew Ivanchuk was black, but then I lost a lot of games. Like against Kramnik was white, against Aronian was black, and I think that's it for those like top. I mean, okay, and top ten players. And against Kramnik, I think it was the most memorable. I lost, but it, it's a, it was a very good game. I mean, if you can find it after the interview, if you can find it right now on chessgames.com, um, it was a great lesson. I mean. I played like a chicken. I betrayed myself because I showed immense uh, like respect for the opponent. Mm-hmm. So I didn't play any of the openings back then against people like uh, like Kramnik. I played d4, knight f3, bishop g5. Mm-hmm. So I didn't play any theory. I tried just to play like e3, c3. And uh, 
he played a fantastical, a fantastic positional game. I think it was mentioned in a couple of the books, like oh, written after that period. Yeah, so he just the, the, the center was completely close, but then he played e5. It was a positional piece sacrifice, and my position collapsed very quickly. I mean, I think yeah, it, it's it'd be good for you like to take a look at that game and see see what you what what you think. Yeah, I will. That that sounds uh sounds like typical Kramnik. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, amazing. Um, so, so, so when you get back to chess, um, you'll be mostly in the U.S. I guess. Um, do you do you have a study plan in place? A study plan? Yeah, for how you how you would work to improve your chess. I mean, uh, my, my chess. Yeah. Well, I I, I I still like try to train regularly, I and mean, I check uh, like current uh, theory trends. I, I check top top games. Let's say Shenzhen Masters. Uh, where uh, I think Giri and uh, Hare Krishna are leading. There right. is another tournament, Grand Chess Classic. I'm checking the games. I try to to see what's what, what's new. Okay. Uh, and I try to like solve tactics. I do puzzle rush. I mean, from time to time. I think I did like 470 times up, up to now. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I'm still like more or less active, and I have I'm, I talk to chess players on a daily basis. I mean, like slow chess team has already like six grandmasters, seven grandmasters, and we meet very often. Not only for training on chess but we also play soccer together like for example i like to hang out with francesco rambaldi he's like italian grandmaster on school chess team then akshat chandra mm-hmm. uh american grandmaster and uh, there is greek international master but he's like 25 60 and so he's like almost a grandmaster yeah, greek player uh, nicholas teodoro okay so he'll be grandmaster soon clearly he has a lot of talent so I, we play soccer and we do chess together I mean. so i do chess like on daily basis plus i'm writing my uh, I'll start writing volume two soon as well. Okay, but you enjoy your studies as well, or is that like more more of a grind for you? No, I, I do enjoy my studies. That's why I switched from supply chain management. If I wanted to have easy life, I would have stayed in business school, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, if I stayed in business school, that would be a very easy life for me. Yeah. But since I want to learn something, I just made my life more difficult, and <laughs> I'm switching to computer science. Okay. Because, because exactly I want to get something out of school, not just a diploma. Gotcha. Yeah, and you speak a bunch of languages too, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know, four and a half maybe. It depends on, if I go to Spain, maybe I'll, I'll be able to say five because huh. I used to speak Spanish when uh-huh. I was playing Spain for three years, but I, I haven't had enough practice for in, for many years, of it, like for five years maybe. And, so but, I, I don't have confidence, yes? And did you live in Spain? No, I never lived. People think I lived, but I only represented Spain. I played for Catalan club, so I, maybe I, on, on average I would spend like two to three months every year. Okay playing tournaments like let's say from 2008 to 2011 mm-hmm. but i never like permanently lived i mean it was normal to come in july and leave in, in september and play all summer tournaments like uh, near barcelona but it was just uh, during a short time period it was never wow. like that sounds like, like the good life to me alex uh, right but it was not that easy of course because i was from ukraine i mean we had to my parents would either take a credit in the bank to afford that trip and oh, hope wow. that, uh, yeah. that would that they would win something back from tournaments, so it was uh, not an easy life. I mean, it was uh, it was real struggle. Yeah, that makes sense. I yeah, I shouldn't have uh, shouldn't have yeah. been so quick to to fantasize about it. Right, right. I, I can tell a story. It doesn't like my mother likes to tell the story. I mean, actually, because she remembers better. I was like fourteen, and uh, my mother wanted me to go to, to Europe to play some tournaments. And my coach at that time, he was like international grandmaster Mikhail Kazakov. Let's say twenty four eighty player, strong grandmaster. Um, he brought a, uh, a, like prospects about tournaments, like bulletins. Like there is going to be some tournament in, in, in Spain in August. And my mother, I mean, 
thought I mean that I should go there, but we didn't have enough funds to, to afford the trip. So she and my father, I mean, who was alive back then, they took a credit in the bank for 1,000 euros, I think. And they were, okay, we went to, to Spain for 23 days and then they, they were paying back it for one year, like 1,000 euros. Wow. So it was like a, yeah, it wasn't easy to, to become an like, international player. I mean. Yeah. The sacrifices that our parents make is... That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And and now, I mean, it, I, I'm, I would say it's paid off in the, that you're able to get all this education based on your success in, in, in the chess world. Right. There's no way I would get this otherwise. I, I would get scholarship otherwise. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, Alex, um, I think we've hit most of the major topics I had highlighted. So aside, so you're working hard. Um, on your studies, you're working hard in chess, you're playing soccer and socializing with some other strong chess players. Is there anything else we're missing in terms of your day-to-day life? Yeah, I think that's it, and pretty much, I mean, yes. Cool, and do you have yes. any tournaments coming up? Um, I was planning to, to play a couple of tournaments in summer, um, maybe uh, some of them in St. Louis, and some of them on, in some other states. For example, I'm thinking to play in U.S., game 3060 national championship in North Carolina. Oh, okay. It'll be, it'll be in Charlotte. I played it last year, but it wasn't too successful. I mean, although I scored like, I don't know, like 13 out of 15 games, I lost like UCF rating. I mean, so I had to basically to beat everyone just to finish first. Okay. It's just crazy. I mean, so you just go and you have to n- not make a single drop because it's either like four rounds, four rounds for game 60, five rounds for game 30. I mean, so what is it about that tournament that that's appealing to you? I mean, it's a national championship. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, it's, it has a national title. On it, so it would be nice to go there. It's only two days. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm I'll be taking summer classes at school uh, during uh, summer. So there'll be no break for me in, in, like, in terms of school. But I can afford to go there for two days, I mean, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, that makes sense. And one other question I did remember, one other topic I wanted to talk about is um, you, you having represented Turkey. So I, in the, the old interview I saw, I mentioned earlier, with Daniel King, you you had not yet been to Turkey, even though you were representing them at the Olympiad. Um, That's correct. Yes, I, mean, I, I was I was coming there very often, but I was never living. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you did visit there. What is? Uh, I've heard great things about Istanbul in particular, but I've never been. Oh, is that where you went, or were you elsewhere in Turkey when you would visit? I was elsewhere. No, actually, in Istanbul, I spent like many many nights in near in, in the airport, in the hotels near the airport, but in the city center, maybe I was like ten hours total or something like that. So Istanbul, unfortunately, I haven't. I didn't opportunity to see that much, but I've seen uh, Ankara, Izmir. And did you pick up some Turkish? Yeah, yeah. My wife is Turkish. Right? Oh, so okay. I, I still have practice. I uh, yeah. I think my Turkish is, should be better than Spanish right now because I just because of practice. Okay. Because I, I hear it every day, and I, I I think I talk to her in English. She talks in I mean Turkish, but I understand them, and sometimes I reply in, in a mix of Turkish and English. So okay. yes, this language still exists. For me. And is she there with you in St. Louis? That's right. Yes. Oh, that's that's nice, and yeah, that that'll help you learn the language for sure. Do you think you'll be continuing to represent them? Uh, well, well, I mean, I know you mentioned you want to, uh, you're applying for a green card, right? I mean, if I get a green card, I mean, I'm perhaps I mean, it would be a smart idea to switch federations. I mean, but it depends on the U.S. government. I mean, as you know, the situation is not uh, certain I mean, nowadays. Yeah, like, <laughs> it depends. Yeah, if if I'm granted a green card so it's i think it's a good thing to do i mean to switch to yes yeah makes sense 
Yeah, especially uh, as you say, if you're planning on putting down roots here, which I, I do feel like uh, we're we're lucky to have you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I, I well, I hope. I mean, U.S. government thinks likewise. Yeah, um, I wish I had some pull with them, but uh, yeah. you know. Just a chess podcast host, unfortunately. Um, so, Alex, if anyone wants to keep up with you, what is the best way? The best way, I think my website is still up. It, it, it's not really that, it's like, it hasn't been updated in a long time, but the contact form should be working. So, if someone sends a message from through my website, I think I should still be able to get it through my email. And people can contact me through my email directly. Okay. Yeah. So it's okay to share your address. Um, I can give my school address for now, okay. which I also check every day. I mean, because I'll be at the university for the next two years. I mean, so okay, you can give my school email. I can write you down and chat after that. Okay. Sounds good. Um, yeah. And and good luck with everything. And listeners, you should you should check out the book. I mean, there's there's he covers Alex covers a lot of stuff, and this is like this is um. How to say this? I mean, you you alluded to it earlier, but this is your blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, these are openings that you played and work that you've put in. So, that would be un- also be unethical to recommend something I have never played, right? I mean, because many people do that; they just recommend some openings which they never played. I mean, but I mean, and then readers have to go and lose the games, I mean, their own games, which is not fair. But in my case, I lost many games myself, so I, I know what I recommend. I mean, yeah. So, for example, Andrew Tank, if you remember that G six Bishop G seven E six land. It was the last round of the US Open, and I lost uh, quite a lot. I mean, by losing that game. Yeah. So yeah, yeah Andrew Tang, legendary online bullet player, Penguin GM. Um, yeah, right. Alex mentions in the book that there was one. He he had a line that he thought he he thought he could trot out there, but but Andrew caught him with um with what you consider to be the best line against it. I I didn't know that back then. I, I, actually, I wrote him into at that time. I didn't know how to refute that line, but he, he I think he prepared with it, like. I think he checked what computer thinks and he managed to get an opening advantage. Right? Yeah, I was going to ask you if you, from that game, because since it was, a, as you mentioned in, in the book, and it was an important one, do you feel like he was, was he prepared for you specifically or did he just happen to, to have something? or happen- I think he, he was also prepared because the game was, at, uh, the previous game finished, let's say, at 12 o'clock. He had like full day, full day to prepare him. Okay. American tournaments are usually like two rounds a day or three rounds a day, right? Right. Just open, it was like one round a day. So he had the full night and full morning and full afternoon to prepare. So he just checked everything that you played and that was... Yeah, I just play, I just play a couple of, of bit openings. I mean, he most likely looked at all of them and uh, yeah. Bummer. He looked deep, deep enough I mean, to get an opening advantage. But about that game, I mean, I didn't mention it in the book, I mean, but I can mention, I guess now, as you remember, one of the players died during the... passed away during the last round. Right, yeah, yeah. That so it was... was actually, I think, it was also a partial influence because I mean, the game was the the, the, the clocks and all, on all boards were stopped after one hour after he played c five. I mean, after he he got the opening advantage, but he was like twenty minutes down the clock, and I was still in the fighting spirit, right? I mean, I'm, I'm fine getting a worse position fighting fighting on, but then the games were resumed four hours later, and yes. After that, I mean, I, yeah, it was a one-sided game. Yeah, that is... Again, that is... I didn't mention this in the book. I mean, just not to, like, skew the picture. About right. The, but I can talk about this right now. Yeah. So the I... game's resumed after four hours. Yeah, that's a unique situation for sure. And I do remember that story. Obviously, a very sad story to have that to have someone pass away in the middle of a tournament. So Right, yes. Um, it actually happens quite quite a lot. Also in Trump's Olympic in the last round, it happened. Wow. Yes, yeah, similar. Yeah. Be careful out there, chess players. <laughs> Right. Um, okay. Well, uh, Alex, I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to volume two. Is that still uh, still in the works? Yes, I'll start working as soon as um, 
spring semester finishes like in two and a half weeks or something. Yes, it should be the the book should be ready by the end of summer. And then it, it's up to Thinkers Publishing when they will publish it. Okay, sounds good. And I will link to where you can get this book um, besides Forward Chess, where you can get the physical copy listeners. But yeah, if you're looking to avoid some theory, which um, I think uh, I think might be a good use of your time, then, uh, then yeah, you should check this book out. And Alex, uh, good luck with everything. And uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thanks to everyone who makes Perpetual Chess possible. Of course, that includes Matthew Passy, my producer, and Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music. I also want to thank everyone who helps spread the word about the show. That includes people who tell their friends, tweet about it, share on Facebook. Apparently, Instagram is a thing. Every little bit helps grow the show. But most of all, I want to thank people who support the show financially. I've said this before, but Perpetual Chess is my most gratifying but least paying work. If everyone who listened to the show were able to kick in $1 a month, it would be my best paying and most gratifying work. So I want to thank those who are able to provide financial support. That includes extra special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Dan O'Hanlon, Greg Shahadi, John Jernigan, and Todd Bryant. And I also want to thank all of my Patreon and PayPal perpetual partners. Here comes the list. You guys ready? Here we go. Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdoma of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Chabri, Christopher Wood. Good job, Christophers. I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer. Good job, Daniels. Dave Saylor, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith. I am Elect Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Ogar of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fartentaine, John Hartman, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Namsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kowrutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habich, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the mysterious Moon Master 9000, Mr. Michael Shahadi, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, the Law Office of Stuart Katz, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Casper, Thomas Stanek, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com. His book is coming accessible. Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrinkouj, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyano. Thank you, everyone, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.